Hello, and welcome to the Free American Voice podcast from Midwestern Citizen. This month's episode will be on COVID, and it's part one of a two-part series. Today, we're going to be discussing recent developments with the virus, as well as some of the economic effects that we're seeing. My name is Raj Asher. I'm a senior at University of Michigan, majoring in economics, and I'm also a senior editor at Midwestern Citizen. Hi, everyone. My name is George Stregas. I'm a junior at The Ohio State University studying philosophy, politics, and economics. And I'm a staff writer at the Midwestern Citizen. Specifically in the law section, I published an article undermining free exercise on the constitutional dilemma of fraudulent religious vaccine exemptions. Hi everyone, I'm Jason Siegelin, editor-in-chief at Midwestern Citizen. I'm also a senior at the University of Michigan studying economics. Hi, my name is Paul Odu. I'm a senior at the University of Missouri-Columbia studying economics and constitutional democracy. So just to start our discussion today, um, we're going to talk about some of the recent developments um, we're seeing with the pandemic. And I think the big headline right now is just seeing, is with the Omicron variant. Um, so, so this is a new variant of COVID that has been spreading rapidly across the U.S. It's currently in 45 states. Um, and a number of universities such as Cornell, Harvard, and Stanford have announced that um, they're going to be temporarily going online for classes. Just some basic info on the Omicron variant. The general consensus seems to be that it spreads quicker than the Delta variant and other variants of COVID that we've seen. However, there's no consensus on the severity of the variant, whether it's causing more deaths or hospitalizations. Um, Some scientists have different opinions. I believe in the United States, we've seen an uptick in hospitalization, not as much in deaths. I think it's still rather young in its stages and there's still a lot to see on the effects of the Omicron variant and how it's going to affect people. But that's the general uptick of the variant right now. A couple major instances of the Omicron variant and its effects in society so far is in professional sports. We're seeing NFL games being moved a number of NBA players being affected and a number of NBA games being canceled without future dates even being scheduled yet. And internationally, the annual World Economic Forum that's supposed to take place in Switzerland in January has been deferred due to the continued uncertainty of the Omicron variant and likely will not take place in person. And this will be the second year in a row that it's not going to take place in person. So I think with that being said, we can kind of turn to now the kind of economic effects that we're seeing um, um, with COVID. So um, I think recently we've seen um, Joe Biden's uh, economic approval rating has been especially low. Um, I think also partly due this to the spread of the Omicron variant, but partly just kind of due to um, just the politics around COVID and kind of getting legislation passed and some of the economic factors we've seen. And Paul, do you want to address more of that? Absolutely. I mean, during the pandemic, we've seen that Biden's approval rating has sort of changed with the times, and it is largely impacted by people's perceptions of both progress on the pandemic, but also progress in the economy. And whenever one of those is disrupted, we see that Biden's approval rating tends to fluctuate. According to a CNBC All-America Economic Survey, Biden's approval rating was down to 37% on the economy, with 56% disapproving, and his approval of COVID-19 handling was down to 46%. 
Another effect of this was seeing Biden's key constituencies that sort of helped him get into the White House, losing support for Biden's agenda, especially when it comes to economics and COVID. And I think largely that's due to recency bias. You know, whenever there's high food prices, whenever there's sort of pain at the gas pump or, you know, the Fed's talking about uh, impending interest rate hikes in 2022, whenever you see all these factors, they sort of tend to weigh on consumers and households and it tends to paint a pretty bleak picture of the economy and of the handling of COVID, whether or not the actual sort of underlying progress on both of those issues differs. So we're seeing a lot of effects on the economy, which are making things seem pretty dismal in the future. But again, when it comes to looking at the economics of COVID, it's it's too complicated to sort of paint a linear path. There's a lot of underlying forces here that are sort of combining to make economic conditions in the United States and across the globe pretty variable at the moment. If you go and look directly at empirics and start looking at some of the figures, um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics shows that in a lot of ways, um, the United States economy is making progress. For example, in unemployment, uh, unemployment between October and November of this year has actually gone down slightly, and it's down overall from earlier this summer. However, when we look at changes in payroll employment, so how many jobs the economy actually added, it added pretty pretty meager numbers in November, about 210,000 jobs, which was down from almost a million in June. So we're seeing that in some aspects, um, people are you know able to find jobs. We have a really, really strong labor market right now. But at the same time, the increase in the number of jobs created in the economy is going down. And obviously, people have been talking a lot about inflation. And inflation has also gone pretty much haywire since the start of the pandemic. And it's caused by a lot of things. It's caused by supply change. It's caused by government policy. But the matter of fact is that between <clears throat> November last year and November of this year, there was a 6.8% increase in the consumer price index, which is basically a basket of goods that is representative of what the average consumer sort of consumes in um, a certain set period of time. And that increase is actually the largest over the same period since June of 1982. Energy prices during that same period rose over 30% and food prices increased 6.1%. So all across the economy, people are seeing increased prices for goods, which isn't necessarily a good thing when there's a lot of other economic factors that are weighing upon people's wages, weighing upon people's employment. And it's creating a situation where consumers and households are almost feeling helpless, especially as a lot of government stimulus sort of runs out and a lot of these programs expire. Yeah. And I think to provide a little insight into going back to the unemployment rate um, decreasing and us seeing more people employed, but also not a large uptick in jobs, I think that really correlates to the idea that a lot of people now with the pandemic aren't working. First of all, we've seen a lot of hospitalizations, a lot of death in the country. So that decreases the labor force right there. And probably the much greater decrease in the labor force is just fear, not wanting to work in a public space where you're going to be in contact with people every day. Um, fear for yourself, but a lot of people fearing for their families, having elderly people in their family that they want to make sure they don't get sick. So I think that kind of explains the how unemployment's going down, but we're really not seeing jobs being created when you would think if unemployment was going down, more jobs would be created. And part of me can't help but think about the political implications of this sort of downturn. We noticed before Trump was elected, uh, certain constituencies were in middle, middle America, where there was um, certain areas of economically depressed areas 
um, certain manufacturing industries, especially, um, and you know, this coal and steel uh, community as well. Um, but I can't help but think um, that this sort of inflation, this uh, economically de depressed sort of a uh, couple of years we've had due to COVID clearly um, would potentially lead to another populist um, um, candidate on either the Democratic side or the Republican side. Um, and so there's a lot of risk here regarding uh, not only the economic implications of people not being able to put food on the table, but also the potential risk of another populist candidate running um, with um, either um, a, a tendency towards um, reinforcing a more restrictive public health state or, on the other hand, um, completely objecting to that. Um, either extreme uh, could be extra, uh, extraordinarily dangerous uh, looking to the future. So that's something I think we should also consider uh, following these economic implications. I think that's a great point, Jason. Um, it just goes to show that sort of the health of the economy is inextricably linked to that both health of the American citizens in consideration of the pandemic, but also the strength of you know political institutions that are the ones putting into effect a lot of restrictions, a lot of policies to sort of curb both the pandemic and improve the economy. And the combination of all these factors goes to show that not one solution is going to be a panacea for a lot of the things we're seeing with COVID-19. It's really going to require sort of a multilateral, sort of very, very targeted, but also very broad-based uh, program or initiative to sort of effectively bring an end to the pandemic while also making sure that that doesn't result in further economic turmoil and further economic pains. And I, yeah, I think with, with that being said, it's kind of interesting to look at um, what's going on with Congress right now with, with Biden's Build Back Better uh, legislation, which, which recently Joe Manchin, um, the senator from West Virginia, who's a Democrat, announced that he wouldn't vote for, which is, which is a vote the Democrats needed if they wanted to get this legislation passed. And this legislation was a plan that Biden really put a lot of political stock into um, as something that would kind of help with, I guess, solving some of these economic problems with the pandemic. But it, it, it's interesting also because some of the reason that Manchin didn't vote for the legislation was because of the inflation we're seeing. He, he thought that um, some more economic stimulus attached to this current infl high inflation we're seeing is just going to cause more inflation, um, which is definitely a possibility. Um, but I think this, the arguments from Biden's side is, no, we're seeing this Omicron variant spreading. We need more relief going out to people um, to, to, to one, to present, prevent the spread of the variant, and then two, to kind of, kind of help them out when, um, when or if uh, people start to lose their jobs. Um, so so I, I think that kind of creates an interesting situation where the economy is both calling for this legislation, but also in the case of Manchin, kind of preventing it from getting passed. Yeah, and I think what you said, Raj, applies to like not only policy relating to recovering from COVID, but just general policy goals right now. If you look at the $1 trillion infrastructure bill that was just passed, one of the first benefits listed on the White House website is uh, solvency for the supply chain issues right now. Um, the supply chain issues being a real lack of materials, demands not being able to be met. It's one of the biggest reasons the inflation is rising right now. And it's due to COVID-19. And even though the infrastructure bill was passed at the same time every year that an infrastructure bill is passed, 
done in a way that all infrastructure bills have been done in years prior and no specific, like it wasn't specific to COVID in any way. It, it was still like the Democrats that wrote it in the back of their minds were wanting to address these supply chain issues because they know that the number one issue politically for them is going to be COVID-19 and it's probably going to be for a long time. Yeah, sort of piggyback, piggybacking off of um, Raj talking about Build Back Better. I mean, it was a pretty comprehensive piece of legislation. There were a lot of sort of funding allotments. Um, there was funding for COVID-19 relief. There was funding for social services, welfare, infrastructure, and climate change. And I think that Manchin's reservation was allowing this much money to enter the, the money supply without necessarily making sure that there's infrastructure to make sure that that money's put to good use is pretty concerning, especially when inflation's already so high. Um, and obviously inflation is caused by an increase in the money supply relative to the quantity of sort of real goods and services in the economy. And without that second part, it's really, really hard to justify, you know, spending a lot more money on sort of public programs without the infrastructure in place, making sure that inflation is abated and that the sort of impacts of these policies, when we're talking about social services, when we're talking about welfare, actually carry out into the broader economy and improve you know the livelihood and the station of a lot of consumers and households and without that sort of second assurance it's it's really hard to justify another large spending bill but then again um, i mean i wrote in my in my uh, november piece for the midwestern citizen about fiscal boldness and when we talk about the federal reserve raising interest rates it's it's really important to keep in mind that monetary policy as sort of a policy lever in and of itself is not necessarily going to be the best way forward. The Fed's tools are, are really limited just to sort of large scale economic factors. When you change the interest rate, when you sort of increase interest rates, you sort of decrease that incentive to borrow and spend. But at the same time, when you don't have sort of legislation put in place like Build Back Better to actually carry through a lot of the social change and economic improvement that Biden wants to see in the United States, sort of run into a pretty big conundrum where the Fed's going to be causing economic contraction at the same time that fiscal policy isn't sort of working in a way to boost economic sort of fundamental economic health, which is, is pretty dangerous. Um, so just, I think it goes to show that one, monetary policy is just not in and of itself very effective, but beyond that, that monetary and fiscal policy need to work together to actually create sort of effective solutions. And the benefit of fiscal policy is it can target economic factors and public health factors, whereas the Federal Reserve really is limited to that dual mandate of stable employment and stable prices. And maybe this is a question you could give us some good insight into, Paul. I know a, a consensus among politicians and economists like economists is that public policy um, does have to play a role in this recovery. Like we can't in the recovery from the inflation, what would a world look like where the public policy surrounding COVID just lackluster, not much is getting done. The Omicron variant spreads and we just try to combat this through interest rates. But how, what, would that be successful? Is that a possible situation? What would that look like? I mean, in general, it's, it's sort of hard to tell. Um, I mean, economists themselves will tell you a lot of their projections don't actually end up panning out, don't actually end up being the case. I mean, economics is a social science, so it's, it's very inexact. But I think that a situation where we're only seeing the Fed sort of interact with policy levers to affect the economy, I think is a situation where we see the Fed can impel a recession, the Fed can impel an economic crisis, especially if there isn't sort of mitigating uh, policies put in place by, by Congress and President Biden. And if that happens, just 
years after a contraction in 2020 caused by the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, I think that will really weigh on people. And I think it will lead to more frustration. I think it will lead to more people being sort of uh, left outside of the grander economic picture. And as Jason was saying, that can lead to you know, political uprising, it can, can lead to um, sort of social, uh, even greater social upheaval and social turmoil than we've seen in the past, especially um, during during the summer of 2020, where we saw a lot of pushback against racial injustice at the same time that sort of the COVID-19 pandemic was raging. So I think that fiscal policy um, is, is really the way forward. Um, and I think that by focusing on monetary policy in the Federal Reserve, we'd be doing a great disservice to um, individuals who have suffered a lot from this pandemic. And not only that, but it would be sort of a limited solution that has the potential to make the problem much, much worse. I think building off that too, if we're experiencing a lot of gridlock in Congress, and so fiscal policy and fiscal stimulus is not going to be an option or really too viable option, um, it's really provides a great experimental framework for future economics li- uh, literature and research, uh, particularly when we look at you know how effective are interest rates, lowering interest rates, increasing interest rates in a vacuum without too much fiscal stimulus um, at, acting as a confounding factor. And so we'll see. I think we'll see a lot of economics research in the you know, macroeconomics research at least um, in the next decade following this, uh, this, this issue and maybe even further into the future, uh, just regarding the, you know, the efficacy of actually just lowering interest rates, increasing interest rates. We'll see a lot more fine-tuned data because of the absence of, uh, of um, there's definitely a fiscal response, but there's clearly some gridlock as well as evidenced by you know, the failure of the uh, Build Back Better plan to actually get passed. I did want to discuss when, while we're talking about sort of specific sections of the economy, sort of break down the impact of COVID sort of pre, during and post. Um, I know we're still going through the pandemic, but, you know, we've had a sort of year of experience to sort of learn about the pandemic, learn about its effects on the economy and sort of be able to compare the economy before COVID and sort of in the situation we're in now. And I think sort of three big areas where COVID's had sort of a tremendous impact uh, found sort of fundamentally transforming economic conditions is energy markets, the stock market, and sort of Main Street, uh, sort of small businesses, individuals, and households. Um, first, looking at energy, I mean, during those initial stages of the pandemic, oil prices cratered. Um, there was an increase in oil supply. There was lower oil demand, um, fewer flights, less travel. People just weren't moving around as much. People weren't going into work. People weren't taking flights. Um, And it really, really led to a strong, strong drop in oil prices. And at the same time, there was conflict between Saudi Arabia and Russia, which saw oil prices um, fall even more. The interesting thing is that mobility, sort of humans using transportation to get from point A to point B, makes up about 57% 57% of global oil demand. So a shock in uh, human mobility, obviously caused by the pandemic, comes with just as coordinate a shock in energy markets. And I think that that is really, really important to consider when you're talking about what's happening in energy markets today. Um, I, I found an interesting, interesting statistic from the International Energy Agency from last year, where they found that countries in full lockdown experience an average 25% decline in energy demand per week and countries in partial lockdown, an average of 18% in a decline. So 
it's really, really important that when we're talking about sort of the onset of new variants such as Omicron, and I know a lot of countries in Europe, like uh, the UK is considering lockdowns again. I know the Netherlands is doing a lockdown um, for the rest of the year. It's really, really important to keep in mind just how destabilizing lockdowns are to the economy and just how much disruption can follow from that. And at a time where we're seeing growing sort of support for an energy transition away from fossil fuels, it's important to keep in mind that lockdowns decrease sort of the viability of the current energy regime at the same time when we're trying to transition to a new energy regime, which has the potential to be very, very destabilizing for governments and for individuals. I mean, energy is sort of the backbone of a lot of different markets. It's sort of the backbone of the economy. It's used in a lot of different industries, and it's sort of the the base, uh, sort of the base commodity in a lot of industries. Um, people always need power, and the fact that the Omicron variant is sort of on the rise, and people are genuinely concerned about going into another lockdown. It's it's really important to sort of keep track of the situation and make sure that, you know, this energy transition um, happens in a way that sort of doesn't upset the current, uh, the current sort of state of energy markets any further. Yeah, I think that's, that's a really interesting point. And I remember back in 2020, I think oil prices became negative, at least for um, the US like WTI oil, like you could get people would pay you to go buy, like pick up the barrel of oil and just like take it out of their facilities um, because it, no one, no one could use it. Um, and I think that also contributed to, I guess, early on in the pandemic, what we saw with um, the airlines uh, getting money from the federal government. Since when people aren't flying, the airlines don't need all the staff that they have. There's, there's no reason they should be paying them. So then the government had to step in and, and pay out a lot of money um, to incentivize the airlines to, to keep their workers on staff there. Um, so I think this Omicron variant, I think it definitely prevent, um, presents kind of another threat of that happening again. And I think, um, I mean, and if it does, if travel does drop again, I, I think we could see even if like Build Back Better failed, we, we could see some more legislation in the pipeline, similar to what we saw in early 2020 that that's used to um, basically hold businesses over um, until this ends, um, especially if lockdown measures have to be taken. Yeah, smaller, more targeted pieces of legislation um, definitely take a lot less political capital than something like Build Back Better. And I think that if we do see a situation where sort of those larger sort of omnibus uh, infrastructure and sort of economic recovery bills don't pass, I think there is a strong argument for bipartisan support for a lot uh, smaller pieces of legislation that aim to do a lot of uh, things that sort of the um, individual provisions within Build Back Better sought to do without necessarily tying them together or without necessarily, you know, costing upwards of trillions. And as we're seeing this, this shift, um, well, in economics terms, the shift, uh, the shift left, and or this this decrease in aggregate demand for for oil and and other sorts of non renewable resources. We, you know, I can't help but think also that there's going to be this is going to help exacerbate the shift towards clean energy as well. Um, and I, I don't necessarily, you know, I don't have the data to predict predict this. I don't have necessarily cross price like elasticities between clean energy resources and and oil. But um, I, I some part of me can't help but think that. There's definitely um, some some sort of good that may come out of this. In that, um, number one, there's less emissions. I mean, <laughs> clearly there's high cost for that um, in terms of lockdowns, but 
Um, and number two, there's, you know, there's also, uh, there could be uh, more subsidies for clean energy, given the massive amount of expen fiscal expenditure that's already occurring. Um, I can't help but think that part of that might be uh, more of that might be spent on uh, wind resources, hydroelectric resources, stuff like that. So there's also that to consider as well. So there's, there could be um, as high the cost is to, to, to lock down there could be some sort of positive externality to that decreased aggregate demand for oil. I'm glad you mentioned that, uh, Jason. I, I do have some numbers on that. Um, so yeah, the COVID-19 pandemic actually accelerated the energy transition. Um, there were a lot of factors that went into this. Um, one of them was sort of pretty stringent environmental regulations. Um, another was investors um, across the globe really are looking for sources of renewable power and their desire to sort of invest in fossil fuels and non-renewable sources of energy has really waned over time. And also the slowdown in energy demand caused by the pandemic and the fall in oil prices, all of those factors have sort of contributed to the growth of renewable energy. And so um, renewable energy consumption during the first 10 weeks of lockdown actually increased in the United States by about 40%. Um, and lockdown restrictions implemented due to the pandemic led to about an 8% decline in energy-related emissions and a 6% decline in energy demand. So it's sort of interesting to see how the pandemic has naturally led from a transition away from fossil fuels towards wind, solar, um, uh, hydroelectric. But at, at the same time, uh, I think it's interesting to see that that transition is, is causing a lot of growing pains um, along the way. And, it, and, and the pandemic is really just sort of uncovered the need to transition away from fossil fuels as efficiently and as effectively as possible. And it highlighted at the same time how difficult that transition actually is to make. Um, so it's, it's, it's a really, really tough situation for uh, the Democrats, especially who have one faction of their party that's really, really strongly in support of greener energy and sort of climate change policies that can sort of mitigate a lot of the climate risks that the world's facing in the in, in the coming years and at the same time another faction of the party um is recognizing that the transition away from oil isn't going to be something that happens overnight i think even president biden mentioned that in one of his speeches that that transition is not going to happen overnight and there's going to be a lot of pain there's going to be a lot of problems and a lot of quite frankly errors that will be made in that transition but i think it just sort of requires weighing you know, whether the long-term benefits of the energy transition uh, exceed those of the short-term sort of losses and the short-term uh, harm that the industry and that consumers are feeling. Yeah, and I wonder, and, and tying to everything that was just said, the individual sentiment behind it. Like, I think we know where policymakers stand on like trying to create green renewable energy, but from an individual standpoint, I wonder if this people and families are starting to back this sentiment. Maybe like people are tired of seeing gasoline prices super high and okay, maybe it's time to go buy a Tesla or an electric car that in, in like in turn is going to be better for the environment, but there's kind of an individual sentiment behind I'm tired of like the volatility of like energy and the oil crisis that we face and maybe tying into that. I wonder if the statistics that you just stated Paul are tied to inflation. Like, we're seeing like this decrease in like um, non-renewable energy, but you have to also remember this, that pretty much correlates with this uptick in like gas prices and stuff. 
I wonder if gas prices drop from above $3 to a dollar if we see that same uptick and now like non-renewable and oil is being used more. So I wonder if inflation has anything to do with those statistics. Yeah, that's 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 a great point. Um, I'm, I'm sure it does. I mean, the thing about all these economic indicators is they're all connected and um, not necessarily in the cleanest ways. So it's, it's really hard to sort of pinpoint what the direct effects of any policy change or what the direct effects of any sort of changes in underlying economic factors has across the entire economy. Um, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And I think just like Jason was saying, there's going to be a lot of research on this in the future that's going to help us sort of uncover what these, what these relationships and connections are. Um, and I think all of that research should sort of be welcomed. I, I want to shift gears and talk about the stock market a little bit. Um, so I think that last year, um, I think most Americans learned more about the stock market than they ever imagined they would. There was just so much chaos, so much turmoil, so many trends that people had never really witnessed before. I know we had GameStop, we had AMC, we had uh, this sort of Reddit-fueled uprising against hedge funds and institutional financial um, uh, um, organizations. And it was fascinating to see how the pandemic was just so different from the, the great financial crisis of 2007, 2009 because it was sort of this external health shock, not necessarily a problem in sort of the way in which money flows across the country and across the globe, it really took on this sort of nuanced impact on the economy, whereas both we saw an unprecedented loss of life and uh, unprecedented impact on the health of individuals living in the United States and across the globe. But also we saw that those health impacts were tied to the economy in ways that no one really could have predicted. And all in all, there was great stress, both um, at sort of the large macro level, but also in the decisions that sort of individuals and households were making during the time. It's kind of interesting to see how during the initial stages of the, of the pandemic, the S&P 500 crashed. It lost a third of its value um, between during, during the crash of February and March of last year. And by August, it had gained all of it back. And it's really been rising ever since. And I find that really, really interesting. Um, obviously, you know, the Federal Reserve stepped in and prevented sort of financial collapse during the time. But the fact that the market rebounded so quickly, it sort of raises questions about how representative is the stock market of the overall health of the economy and whether economic indicators are useful in sort of guiding policy. Yeah, I think that's super interesting because I remember like unemployment had had spiked to to levels we hadn't seen in a long, long time. And at the time, still the stock market would be going up. And I think a lot of it, I think one of the explanations for it is that the the stock market is is now very forward looking, that people were looking two years down the road when we're completely out of this and thinking that, well, this is just a temporary pandemic. I mean, looking back to maybe Spanish flu, that that just kind of went away. We recovered and um, the stock market will be back in the future. And so I, I think that's one possible explanation for it. But I think now, especially with this Omicron variant, and we're seeing kind of the persistence of COVID that you might have to live with this um, for multiple years, and it's not something temporary. It'll be interesting to see if the markets then kind of react to that and then maybe stay at a lower level or um, continue to stay high, which would, and if they continue to stay high, I think that would lend less credence to the kind of forward, forward looking hypothesis if um, the pandemic's like going to stay with us. Yeah. So 
when looking at Main Street, during the sort of beginning of the pandemic, there were a lot of Americans furloughed. There were a lot forced to work from home. Um, industries such as like services, travel, retail, those were hit especially hard. And that led to both a decrease in labor productivity and labor demand. And stay-at-home orders during the stages of the pandemic, during those initial stages of the pandemic, um, were just devastating for small businesses and for large corporations. And that loss of revenue really, really had a strong impact on employment, um, both at the, the the large sort of corporate corporate level, but also with sort of smaller regional businesses. And now we're seeing a lot of that federal funding sort of being drawn down um, at a pretty critical moment of the pandemic. Um, Congress committed nearly $6 trillion over this two-year period to sort of combat COVID, but also sort of revive the economy. And a lot of these programs have either expired or been canceled or simply run out of money. Um, and as Omicron um, is, is on the rise, that's it's really something to keep an eye on. It's, it's something that can really bring the United States back to sort of those initial stages of the pandemic where there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of chaos, a lot of variability. And I'm not sure that there's the political will for that. I'm not sure there's you know a lot of social will for that, but I'm not sure that the economy is healthy enough to sort of take another large shock like that. Um, it, it'll be something definitely, definitely to watch. I think a counteracting trend is that holiday spending is sort of forecasted to to break records this year. Um, one of the interesting things about the pandemic is it sort of reshaped the retail sector and that small businesses and retailers that were able to sort of pivot to online services efficiently reaped most of the benefits from sort of increasing consumer demand. And I think that that could be a benefit in that you know, small businesses are actually seeing business during this period of time, especially those who are, you know, have strong, robust online platforms. But at the same time, could this sort of exacerbate existing supply chain issues? I think that that's something to um, really keep in mind. Yeah. So I think the way demand is shifted, it's gone from a demand of a service to a demand of a good. So I guess like a simple example of this is people are less likely now to go to a movie theater and see a movie and now more likely to just buy the movie, just given the general fear in society. And like you said, Paul, that is really that shift in like the way demand seen has been something that businesses have had to adapt to moving to things online. And I think, I mean, companies and platforms like Amazon have seen tremendous success because of this fear in society. I know like when the pandemic first started, like there was almost like, a national push of like to support small business, but at some point the fear sets into people's own lives. People are going to be less likely to go to the local mom and pop shop and they're going to be more likely to order on Amazon because it's going to be more efficient for them and less risky. And I think really small businesses being able to adapt to that change in the way demand is sought is going to be super important for their success moving on. Awesome. So thank you all for this great discussion on kind of the effects of COVID and the economy. I think we've learned a lot over the past year and a half, two years or so. Um, but I, I think we're also, it's going to be interesting to see what happens um, with the kind of Omicron variant, how that develops and how Congress and, and the government reacts to that. 
so be sure to check uh, midwesterncitizen.com um, for our December 15th release that just recently came out. We will also be having a release at the beginning of January and make sure to subscribe to the podcast. Episode two of um, the COVID theme episodes will be coming out soon and it will be on the legal effects of COVID. So thank you.